You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and I hope wherever you are in the world and whatever you're doing, you are doing very well. The bloke that you're about to hear from, his name is Mark Brzecki, and he's the drummer in long-running UK outfit, Big Country. There was a bit of a problem with my recording software, so the opening question didn't come through, actually, so all you hear is Mark's response. Now, the question was, the Australian tour that's coming up, what can fans in Australia expect? So why don't we cut to the chat with Mark? Here we go. Um, yeah, we do get asked that. Um, I mean, you know, we're, we're a rock band at the end of the day, um, but we've been a band that's been around for a long time. So, um, you know, you can expect people that will be there will already know who we are. Um, they may have even been um, to see us uh, three or four years ago when we came out there. Um, but there'll be a new generation, hopefully, there that will be interested to see what the band's about. Uh, those who have come for curiosity and those who come because they've heard about the band and they know some of our hits we've had and um, never had the chance to see us for some reason or another through our own fault for not coming out back in the day or, you know, through um, people being at work and stuff. So it's going to be a great gig. Uh, it's always an emotional gig, big country, particularly by the fact that, um, you know, our songs are very... Um, I suppose the lyrical thing, um, you know, is uh, very moving. Um, the words are very powerful that Stuart wrote. Uh, people relate to a lot of the lyrics like people do. They yep. find their own um, things within lyrics. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, when we were there last time, it was quite emotionally charged. You know, um, I could see people were very emotional hearing the band hmm. play um, after, you know, never really having the chance to see it live. Uh, and longing to hear some of those songs. So from the from the fans' point of view, they're going to love it. From a, a, a curious point of view, you're going to love it anyway. If you like good music, it's a great band. So yeah, great. it's yeah. going to be a great band and, and probably a powerfully charged because we're a powerful band. So, yeah, I know on that point, you know, your 10 albums with with Big Country, we're going to talk about your, the rest of your career after we've got the questions about Big Country out of the way, but, you know, 10 albums, no, no yeah. 10 albums of in your career with Big Country numerous music videos i think i've lost count of how many music videos that are out there and also countless tours so can you talk about what some of the highlights have been oh, yeah well it's, to me um i don't notice the highlights because it, it's uh you know every it's a journey we're on you know it's like looking at your photos uh, um, music is like a musical snapshot of your career, if you like. That's what the albums are. It's like a photo album, musical album. And and, and for that reason, I, I find it hard to define. Um, it's like picking out photographs. You know, um, you, you go and you pick out your best ones because, the, you know, whatever, because you remember. But then you go back and look at those photographs again. You think, oh, my God, I didn't really realize that. You know, blah, blah, blah. Same with the music. You know, it, it ebbs and flows with what I think of my highlights and my low points sometimes the most um trivial things can be a high point for me and sometimes the biggest things can can not be as special you know it's one of those things it, it, it's i don't really have a high and low point i mean for me um i think every gig is very special and i'm not being cliche to say that but you know every time we play it's a special moment um to be able to play that the music and uh to have somebody come and um, hear the music is very special. Mm. Obviously, you know, I suppose um, stereotypical high points for me would be doing Top of the Pops where, you know, you're, you're, you're actually miming on that, but you're actually fulfilling a, a childhood sort oh, of yeah. career sure. ambition when you wanted to be on TV. So that's a high point for me with the band. 
Um, you know, the obvious ones are like when we support the Rolling Stones, that's a high point right. because we love the Stones and it's such a big gig, but it's not wasn't really our gig, you know. Uh, but that was massive as well. Going to Russia was massive for us, you know, for me. Um, having my father was, was Polish and um, my wife's got Russian ancestry. So that's special to me. Um, you know, Barrowlands as, as, a, as a concert in Scotland, you know, is seen as like big country's home. But for me, I'm from London. You know, what was special for me was, as much as I love Barrowlands, what was more special for me was playing the Hammersmith Odeon, which I always longed to play awesome. when I was yeah. always driving over the the, uh, the flyover, looking down at that gig <laughs> and hoping one day that I was in a famous band and I would see my band up on the um, awning, which I then did, you know. So yeah. um, getting cool. in the charts is obviously, you know, hearing hearing the song played on the radio the first time is a really big buzz, you know. Um, and I still love hearing our songs on the radio. That's something I never thought I would achieve. Um, and it's a great thing. You know, you know, you're on your way with the band. So many highs, um, but some of them are, you know, a small club somewhere where we've had a fantastic gig. And, you know, we played in America and even um, I love play, I love America and I love playing out there. And, you know, we did one show in the middle of nowhere and there wasn't many people there, which there wouldn't be on a Wednesday night in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but yeah, the rest of the shows were great. But that was really special because those who came, got the same show and we we actually got to meet them all you know so it's very mixed what my special moments are but obviously the, the stereotypical ones would be obviously the success of the band yeah um, you know having a number one album with still town was was immense for me um and then you know the fact that i'm still we're still playing you know as a, a older guys in the music industry we're still able to go out there and play yeah and that's special when you get older as well you know it is with so many not able to do it, and no, look, yeah. it answers it beautifully, you know. Yeah. Um, but let's. I want to ask you a question about probably my favourite track from the band, which is "Republican Party Reptile." So, with all that's happening in the world today, okay, you know, the lyrics are very fitting. However, right. I'd probably not just, many people I'd don't probably, really. I'm surprised you know that record. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know it wasn't one of the big ones. What album but, was that on? Was that "Why the Long Face"? Uh, was that I think no, so. I just "Why the Long Face." On. I, I, what happened was I've actually stumbled across the video on YouTube first. So I've got it in my playlist of one of the videos that, that have sort of repeatedly come right. on whenever I'm, I put music on in the background, whenever I'm entertaining my kids and the like. So probably couldn't tell you right. the album that it's from, but I just, I love the slide guitar. And, and no, I think it's stuff. no place. Left. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, what I was saying is I'd probably just change the title these days to political party reptile because of the way things are, are sort of trending. It seems like the the nature of politics these days you don't yeah. want to be a sociopath to be in any either side of the uh political equation but you know my question about that track is is that a track that survived through to the current set list sorry you broke up there oh sorry is the is that a track is republican is republican party reptile a track that survived and is that on the current set list will you be playing that in australia no, we never played that at all, you know. Um, that was on one of our kind of, uh, yeah, I can't explain it. We we sort of have highs and lows in our career and um, certain albums resonated and were big and blah, 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 but it didn't. It wasn't relative to um, the musical output. And No Place Like Home and My The Long Face were kind of um, transition periods within the band. You know, there was a lot of experimentation with the music at that time. Um, and there was a lot of changes going on in the band. I remember um, the band had broke up in um, 1989. Stuart wanted to, you know, not known to people this. Uh, he wanted to break the band up in 1989, and, mm. um, you know, it was the band 
we didn't publicly announce it, but Stuart wanted out. And uh, I went and did other things, and um, they reformed, um, and I wasn't able to come and be full-time member with the band, although it's documented that I left, which I never did. Uh, but the point I'm making is on one of those albums, I think it was No Place Like Home, it was on that album. I, I, I kind of flew in and played on that record at Rockfield Studios in Wales. Yeah. Um, for the first time, as not as a band member, although I hadn't actually left. Um, it, I was seen as a session player on that. It's just the fact that I couldn't come back and join the band after they broke up and reformed when I wasn't ready to come back. I was out, I was out doing stuff in the States with Simon Townsend, Pete's brother. How does, so, how does that um, feel to be a session member? That record, was it, was it... How does that feel to be a session member in your own band? It must feel a bit like as though you've turned up to the wrong party. Well, I wasn't actually... I mean, it, 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 from the public perception I was, I actually wasn't. It, it, uh, there was another drummer um, they were using... Um, whilst I was seeing my time out with a contract that I had to do, um, I was contracted um, with, um, um, I, 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 it was on Warner Brothers. Um, I was, I had to, um, no, sorry, it was Atlantic Records we were signed to. And uh, I was doing an album with Simon Townsend and I was also touring with Progal Harum and a few other things at that time. Yeah. Fears fears. I was doing a lot, a lot of session work. When Stuart had kind of internally, um, you know, without going public, had split the band up, hmm. uh, you know, we stopped for an extensive period of time and um, I, we all had to do our own thing. And I wasn't ready to come back um, when, when the band suddenly decided when Stuart wanted to come back. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't actually able to do that. But I was able to do the session and carry on where I was, going back on tour and stuff. And, I, I you know, I always said I would come back as soon as I'd done my fulfilled my contract so I did and I, I came back after the um, um, Buffalo Skinner's album um, I came back to, to that tour you know yeah so um, that record is, is, a, is, a, is an unusual record I mean it was no different for me playing on that record to any other record we're in a studio that we all loved at Rockfield um, I've just come out of there actually last week with uh, Tiffany actually from the 80s um, so I revisited <laughs> that studio really okay. um, yeah. and um yeah, I've just done some songs with her. Um, but yeah, um, it's a great record, you know. We, we were writing some um, some really, really interesting songs during that period. Yeah. Uh, very different to what you would expect if you put them side by side to The Crossing or Steeltown. Yeah. But nevertheless, they showed a growth and a development in the band's writing, which some fans didn't like, you know, because, you know, I think we're in a position where, I've said this before, we're damned if we do, we're damned if we don't. You know, if we stayed the same... We were told that we were never changing. We sounded alike. Every record sounded the same. Those cynics would always use that as a stick to beat us with. You know, we have the same sound, da-da-da-da. It's the same song, blah, 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 which it truly wasn't. So if we ever changed and, and we, you know, we tried different things, the less bag, pipe guitar, you know, we bought in yeah. some keyboards and stuff, they would go, whatever happened to Big Country? They've lost their identity. You know, we're deserting them, you know. So we were damned if we stayed the same and we were damned if we didn't. So that, yeah. was, that was kind of like how... Um, sorting ourselves out period I always felt those two albums were like the um, big country finding their feet again you know uh, which they did I think with Buffalo Skinners they kind of reverted back to hey we've tried all this stuff we're getting nowhere we're treading water we can't please anyone we can't even please ourselves you know so um, yeah. we'll go back to the um, being a rock band with, with, with um, you know the, the, the formula that, that we had before you know in a certain way you know you know, all bands go through that period where they do try different things. It's just whether or not fans can keep up or not. And and for the record, your the yeah. transitional phase produced great music. And I'm gonna 
This is my view, of course. I don't expect you to share this view at all, but you listen to some more, some of the more recent U2 albums and they're just terrible. Um, at least with Big Country, I've, I've had a, a, a quick listen to most of the albums that I could find um, on Apple Music and it's all very consistent output is the point that I'm making, whereas a lot of these bigger bands yeah. like U2, they, they release some stuff and as an old fan, I sort of listen to it and I think, what the hell's going on here? What are they trying to do? Who are they trying to keep up with? Mm. Well, you know, we were very much a band that um, were true to ourselves, even to our own detriment. I mean, mm. Stuart was like that from the get-go, you know. Um, I we, we always had, we talk about having this kind of quality control within the band's musical writing. And by that, um, it kind of came from Stuart Adamson and, and, and more so... It became like the way the band felt collectively that we, we all agreed on that same path. Um, and that would be like if we had a song idea and it wasn't, um, you know, it, it wasn't very commercial, but it has a good vibe and the lyrics were very interesting and, and deep. And, you know, we had about four different sections to that song. You know, if we liked it and we felt it felt great, um, then, it, then, it, then it passed, you know, it, yeah. was, it was something we were going to do. But, um, you know, if it felt like we were selling out or, we were, you know, record companies are trying to lean on us to be a bit more commercial, hmm. um, we couldn't kind of adapt to that, you know. And uh, I remember some of the things that didn't make the records were amazing, you know. Some of the demos we had, that, you know, there's a host of demos on YouTube now that yeah. people love that never made the seal to saw the light of day because, in hindsight, I think they were wonderful. But, you know, Stuart and, and, and more so from Stuart was saying that, you know, that's shite, well, that ain't making a record, you know, we'll keep that as a demo, you know, and yet actually, they're amazing songs, you know. Yeah. Um, who's the judge? You know, music's music. Um, I mean, a, a good example for that would be the first album, The Crossing, you know, that really broke the band. Yeah, um, yeah. Which is what that's your big playing. one, yeah. Um, you know, there was, one, there was one track on there um, that uh, we never played, um, and that was, it, never, it never got released, um, as it, but it was on the album. Uh, and that was The Crossing. It never made the album, the track The Crossing. Okay. You know, it could have been the title track of the album, The yeah. Crossing, and it never made the record, you know. It was an instrument, well, it, it wasn't instrumental, but there's a lot of instrumental sections, um, and it's, it's almost a little bit prog-rocky in some ways, you know, some odd time signatures and things. But yeah. um, uh, have you heard that track? No, I haven't. It's no, a great piece of music, out, you know, and uh, it's called The Crossing, and it was it was meant to be on the album to represent The Crossing, and... She said, nah, we'll leave that one out, you know. He was very much like, nah, it's not good enough, or, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, no, you know. Um, so, yeah, we've, um, because of that, I think, you know, what you said earlier, if you take a snapshot of everything we've done, it has a continuity of not only quality, but within the, um, you know, yeah. the uniqueness of the band's sound and songwriting was always very much our own. We didn't really uh, look to our left or to our right to try and be like somebody else because they were having more success than us, you know. To our own detriment, to be honest with you, you know, we didn't really play that card that the record company was kind of hoping, you know. Mm. I think, um, I think probably to your advantage now and your long The band career. couldn't... Yeah. Stuart couldn't, couldn't deliver that stuff if it wasn't hard, if it wasn't um, meant, you know. Mm. Yeah. He couldn't deliver that stuff. He, 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 we could write it, but he, he had to... Um, uh, he had to feel comfortable with what it meant and how it how it could be played live and how he felt it would be perceived so yeah it was very much his own quality control so yeah um i, I think other bands um you know 
you just mentioned you too, um, maybe they, they were less like that, you know, which is what made the country's uh, continuity. Well, actually, um, yeah, I mean, there was probably a know, tangent at some point where big country could have been as big as you two if there'd been a break in the US. Would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we were making, um, we were breaking ground in in um, in, in the USA. You know, we had Grammy nominations, 85. Um, you know, we were on um, Saturday Night Live and some really big shows. So, yeah, we were making good headway there. But, you know, with America, it's such a big place. Uh, it's such a big country. There goes a bit of a pun there. You had to keep the pressure on. You had to stay there. And the likes of you two, um, uh, uh, Tears of Fears, and all those bands that, you know, came along and took America... The way that they did that was obviously they had quality to start with, obviously to resonate with with the public, but they stayed out there and did the work. You know, I remember we had a lot of opportunities and, and if I'm very honest, some of them through the pressure of being on the road all the time, you know, becomes as a family and, you know, with that comes people that you don't see, wives and families, and um, that has to be looked after as well. And uh, I know Stuart struggled with that for a lot, a lot of his career. Mm. And, uh, you know, decisions were made why and when we didn't turn up to places. Even Australia, we didn't turn up, uh, you know, through not being able to get out there for certain reasons, personal reasons. And um, most of those were family um, reasons. Yep. So we missed some big yep. chances. You know, I remember we were an Elton John tour we didn't do. We didn't do a police support tour. Mm. Um, things that could have broken us out in America at that time. Um, and we could have stayed out there. You know, we should have and could have stayed out there. Uh, but it wasn't, the focus became more localised through the management and um, to keep the band more local where, you know, you could keep more of a family structure in the background. Uh, not for me personally, because I wasn't married at that time. Um, but yeah, that, that you know, we didn't do Live Aid, which was a shame. That didn't quite go right. We, there was some misunderstanding about our availability, so who knows what they would have yielded. But you, you, uh, played, in, but you personally, point. you played at Live Aid, didn't you? Well, we only sang at the end. You know, we didn't perform as big country. We played. We uh, came on and sang "Feed the World" at the end because we we're on the record. You know, giving an announcement on the actual yeah. vinyl. Yep. We all say our names individually. And um, we, uh, you know, I was working with Roger Daltrey when Bob Geldof uh, was doing a solo album. Album when Bob Geldof came in the studio to visit Roger to talk about that event. And um, you know, he then asked me about big country, which I put onto my management. And then, you know, it, it just took. I think there's a misunderstanding between communication between the management and what was going on. Okay. Uh, and in the end, you know, the slot was taken. You know, yeah. so uh, we were involved in the whole day and the whole event, but not really. You know, had we been on stage playing some of our songs when we were really in the charts, you know, who knows what we, what our story would be now? You know, who knows? Uh, but that seems to be like the fate of big country. You know, it's when there's there's always a positive and a negative with things. You know. Uh, musically, it's amazing, but there's always the undercurrent things that that stops things from being as big as it should or could be, you know, which is it was a real shame, you know. Um, so, you know, in a way, I'm, I always thought of unfinished business, you know, in America as well. I love going out there because you hardly go out there. Hmm. Uh, and Australia and New Zealand, you know, great places to play. So another reason why we're so excited to be coming out, myself personally as well. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so this is at mm. the point in the interview where I want to start talking about you as an artist because I had a chat to Bruce Kulik, who of course is in KISS for a while. Um, both yourself and Bruce Kulik probably occupy a space where 
even if you hadn't tried to hear your musicianship, I think anybody who's even listened to radio for, you know, five minutes are going to hear a track that you've played on. So I don't really know where to start because you've, you've played with so many people for all, you've performed and recorded and done work with the cult, the jam, I know it was called From the Jam, but I'll just call it the jam, members of The Who, Ultravox, ABBA, Joan Armour Trading, Peter Gabriel, Sting, and there's heaps more. The first track that I want to ask you about, or the first band that I want to ask you about though, is a little bit obscure, is Go West. So my question for you is, did you end up playing on the track Don't Look Down? Um, it's a yes and no answer to that. Yes, I did. Um, it's, it's kind of, there's a, the producer of Go West was Gary Stevenson, a very good friend of mine. And I was in a band with Gary uh, at the same time that we were recording The Crossing with Big Country. We were going to put a band together. It was very Go West in its sound. Um, uh, and uh, Gary was good friends with Richard and Pete. And um, Gary being a really great friend of mine, and he loves my drumming, um, he got me to go into Soundwest Studios and I played uh, along to some of those tracks, uh, including those songs. And Gary, Gary was really into sampling and um, rejigging some of those songs. So as far as when I went down there, he said he was, had this project with Go West, which um, was a new band he was doing. And I went down to the studio, down to Salma Studios in London to record uh, those tracks or, or, or those songs. Mm -hmm. And uh, it ended up that we ended up playing along to them and Gary playing around with them in production. So some of those, it, 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 as far as I remember, it was my drum sound on those, but Gary had programmed some of the uh, placements for them. And, uh, and a drummer called, uh, I think it was Tony Beard, as far as I remember, came in to do some overdubs and probably went through the same procedure as well. I'm not sure how it actually played out. That's yeah. the thing, yeah. what you hear at the end of the day. But I was involved in the, in the Go West um, uh, recording uh, and I ended up playing with them live a few times at the Princess Trust. I was so, going to um, ask you about you that. Know, yeah, they weren't actually in the studio when we did that, yeah. So you played with... Um, you played but it, with... It, it, as far as I was led to believe through Gary, the producer, it's, it's, you know, it's my snare and drumming on, on those hits. So uh, that's, that's what I know uh, at that time. So I was so... doing so much session work that, you know, that was another one that I went in the studio, came out, and I was paid for, as a go-where session, if you know what I mean, so for that period. So, yeah, so I'll I... take it that I'm still on. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I love that video that's on YouTube of you, you playing at the Princess Charity Trust because Mark King's playing bass in that clip as well. So did Mark King do the bass mm -hmm. for work for Don't Look Down, did he? Um, no, I don't think he did, no. Um, I, I, don't, I, I don't think he played bass on that album. You know, I may be wrong. Um, but the Princess Trust were great concerts because it was one of those situations that, you know, I was drumming with my hero, Phil Collins, who I think is one of the greatest drummers in the world, hmm. big influence on me, uh, along with Stuart Copeland and, you know, say Simon Phillips and the greats from the 70s, Billy Cobham and that era. And um, it was wonderful for me to be able to uh, be involved for many years, you know, with, with being in the house band, as in the house band with the house band being Eric Clapton, Elton John on piano, you know, it was a ridiculous <laughs> band to be in. Phil Collins and myself on drums and, um, you know, George Harrison on guitar. It was just ridiculous. So that alone was amazing, but it was also doubly amazing for me because the guests that they were coming on to play, I'd already worked with because I'd worked with so many people that um, when they were coming on to play, I'd already worked with them individually on their albums. So it was like a big 
family reunion for me musically with with the guys coming on you know i knew everyone that was coming on within reason because i'd done something with them at some point in their career uh so that's always been an amazing thing for me which i'm very proud of um yeah uh, it, it kind of expanded my um cv obviously for working with people on that on that position like with peter gabriel and the bgs you know when the three of them were yeah uh, all together and um, all that you know it I still pinch myself because I'm still a music fan as well as a drummer. You know, I'm very proud to be involved in that stuff. And um, Midger, the uh, MD, because uh, I was working with Midge on his solo records as well. Mm-hmm. You know, he always he always loves working with me and likewise myself with him. And he was always very generous with um Always loved me on those sessions, um, on those Princess Trust shows, because, uh, you know, I'd always... We always had a great band and I, I again... A lot of the artists coming on, I'd already knew. So, <laughs> again, it was not one big family. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you know, playing on these records is is, is great. You know, um, the Cult was a great record to do at short notice, and uh, you know, <clears throat> the Pete Town stuff stuff's amazing. And they're all very different. You know, um, I did stuff with Fish from Marillion and his solo records. Uh-huh. Different hat on, you know. I put I put on, you know. Um, and I do like the fact that I'm able to switch um, into different genres of music. But at the end of the day, I think I can still sound like myself. You know, I, I think you can still tell it's me on drums. And um, that's something I always wanted to achieve because I always felt that the drummers that I always liked back in the day, it's a personal thing. Um, I'd always loved hearing drummers that you could tell who they were. Like you, you could hear John Bonham's sound. You know, you could hear Phil Collins's drum sound. Unmistakable. You could unmistakably hear Phil um, Stuart Copeland's sound. And even getting to the more obscure ones, like from drummers, drummers music, I could always tell Simon Phillips' sound or Steve Gadd's sound, or Billy Cobham's sound. And I wanted to be one of those drummers that had an identifiable sound. And apparently I've got that. So um, that's something that I don't hear so much these days, you know, on record because of the way it's produced now. Um, things of generic uh, drummers tend to... Um, be very low in the mix these days or if it's a drum machine it's um sampled and it's really hard to hear the identity of the drummer mm. anymore i can't tell who's drumming stuff anymore you know yeah so i kind of um I, I i don't know how i achieved that but i was just very again like stuart was his music i was very true to my drumming <coughs> oh, excuse me i kept um i played the same snare drum throughout my career i still play the same snare drum to retain my sound and I tend to use the same cymbals and I tune the same way. And you know, I've got certain discipline in the studio that I always maintain the same sound, you know. Um, yeah. I'm not sure what, what, if I've spun off too much there with my answer. But, no, you've touched, um, on, you've touched on a few really important things. And, and one of them was your work with the cult. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you performed on She Sells Sanctuary, which is probably their most well-known track. Well, you see, it's a very interesting conversation, this, because... Um, yeah, I, I performed on the Love album, and I'm in the She Sells Sanctuary video, but my history in the cult was due to the fact that the She Sells Sanctuary was already recorded with Nigel Preston. Mm, and okay. he was, um, obviously, you know, sadly he died um, through a, a drug overdose. And um, um, they were having big, big problems with, with Nigel uh, due to his lifestyle. And um, at the end of the day, they, they needed to, to press on with, with the album that was... Um, to be recorded Love Album, which included She Sells Sanctuary. So they called me up at short notice to say, can you can you uh, get down to Wimbledon Studios and play on, um, just turn up 
uh, like the next day, it, it, the next day they asked me, you know, in 24 hours, can you turn up and do um, the video of She Sells Sanctuary, which obviously I, I, I came down and put on a, a New York police jacket, <laughs> leather jacket, and tried to um, <laughs> make myself look a little bit, took the check shirt off, you know, and put the other shirt on and yeah. the jacket on. And they were great guys, you know, they were great friends of ours anyway. They were from the same management. <clears throat> so um, Billy and Ian, we, we, we were great friends anyway. And uh, it was after doing that that they said to me, look, we need to go straight into the studio and record this album. We can't use Nigel because, you know, he's hospitalized. He's, he's not turning up at things. And there's a sad story regarding that. And I'm not too party to, to, too clear about, but yeah. he was very unreliable and subsequently sadly passed away, which is a tragedy. But um, I was able to go into uh, the studio at short notice in, in Guildford and really just hear those songs pretty quickly um, played to me. And I would knock down the drum tracks Oh, you know, one by one in the, in that course of that week to finish the love album, which you know has got the other hits like Rain and um, the Phoenix and all that stuff. You know, great songs in itself. Uh, so that was a great album for me to do, and I've since been able to um, play with them uh, as a guest when they've had the original lineup when they were celebrating the anniversary of the love album, including She Sells Sanctuary, and come and play that live, which was a joy for me, and play some of the songs off that album that I played on. So yeah, you know, the, the cult that was a very special thing for me to play with them. And I, I had no idea when you do these records that they would go on to be as big as they were, you know, because they were just breaking at that time, coming out of the Southern Death Cult mm. into their kind of um, newfound rock gospel yeah. thing at that time. Well, Guns N' Roses uh, And then it kind of developed into um, more of an Americanized um, rock thing that they did. You know, they embraced the big hair band thing of the 80s, which was very successful for them. But for me, it's a special album for me as a drummer. I'm very proud to have played on that. And the fact that a lot of the public see that as one of their best albums, you know, uh, it's certainly an evergreen one for the cult. You know, if you're going to document the cult, that is one album that's mm. a special one that I play on. And for that, I'm very proud of, you know. So being, being a drummer, let's talk about bass plays. You played with one of the very mm. best in the biz, which is Bruce Foxton from The Jam. So that must have been tremendous to have <laughs> him in front of you. I mean, I know you play with Mark King as well, so there's another fantastic bass player. But, you know, you work with yeah, Bruce. Mate. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, Bruce, again, is a great friend of mine. Um, he's, he's a super guy. And, um, yeah, I was always a jam fan. Um, and, you know, obviously there's a special relationship um, musically as well as being a mate with uh, bass players. Um, you know, it's the, 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 the way it works for me is that the, the drums is a rhythm and the bass links the rhythm to the music. You know, there's there's... There's a massive link between the drums and the bass, hence it's the rhythm section. And um, you know, it's a great it's great when you ha when you when you hear great bass players. You know, I always my ears always prick up when I hear great bass playing. And from the start, you know, in the jam, not only did they write some fantastic songs, a part of my youth growing up, um, but the bass playing was always phenomenal. You know, absolutely phenomenal, one-off. You know, um, individual style, unique sound, not unlike John John Entwistle from the Who in his tone. And he was influenced by John, you know, hugely, as, as, as not only does it sound like it, but he's, he's told me that as well. And I put a band together, you know, we, we supported them with Big Country when they were, when they were doing their um, Big the New Breed farewell tour. We, supported, we did six nights at the um, Wembley Arena with them, which was fantastic. So we were kind of on our way up and they were kind of splitting up, which was terrible for Bruce, really, because, you know, it was, it was a, a breakup that they didn't really want to see happen, you know, Bruce and Rick, the drummer. So long story short, mm. I ended up 
we, uh, you know, in, in the ups and downs of big country, me and Bruce Watson put a band together with Simon Townsend um, with Bruce Roxton as the Casbah Club. So I ended up working with Bruce back in the day, you know, back in the 90s. And, um, you know, we got on really well um, and then kind of did our own thing. Big Country got back together. Bruce did his own thing, Stiff Little Fingers. <coughs> Excuse me. And, um, yeah, it was later that From the Jam were playing and they needed a drummer after Rick quit the band. And I was still with Big Country, but um, just we were re- kind of reforming Big Country. And, um, you know, that was during the period, you know, we'd lost Stuart and everyone was doing their own thing. And uh, I was able to, um, Bruce called me up and said, you know, do you want to come and play with, with me and Russell, Russell Hastings, who's an amazing guitarist and songwriter himself. Mm-hmm. He does a great job doing the jam stuff, a lovely guy too. And ended up working with Bruce. And, I, you know, it's an absolute joy working with Bruce. He's a phenomenal bass player and a wonderful guy. But the energy that he's got on stage and the sound is, you know, it still, it still gives you shivers up the spine when he plays, you know. He's one of those evergreen bass players he's a bass player's bass player with a unique style sure. you know yeah. of that era he's one of the greats as as in as is mark king and a few others you know so yeah i was very honored to play with bruce as well as mark obviously how did you mark king has a very unique style so i'll, I'll say now i'm a bass player and i love a lot of um, players like larry gray oh right okay. style. so I, I gravitated toward yeah. mark king at a very early age i mean what's it like playing with a bass player that's so um He's so competent on the thumb slap and slap bass side of things. Is a bit intimidating sort of sitting behind a guy like that who's going all over the fretboard and doing the things that he's doing because I know I have troubles with some drummers, to be honest with you, from the perspective that whenever I do that sort of stuff, some of them don't know where to look. They're fairly traditional rock drummers. You've crossed over into a lot of genres and are are an extremely competent drummer. Mm. But even for you, having a guy like Mark King in front of you, does he occasionally just turn around and go, watch this, mate, come with me? That sort of thing. Uh, well, it's, um, you know, I, I grew up doing the prop and the jazz fusion stuff when I was younger. And, um, you know, I made my sort of fame through Big Country, which was a very, very different style of music. Although the drumming, I tried to keep interesting for that reason, you know. Hmm. So I was always really capable of playing that kind of stuff. You know, I was always always playing quite complex drumming before I was in Big Country. Um, so meeting Mark was a joy because, you know, Phil Gould was a great drummer um, when I used to hear the that you know the level 42 stuff uh yeah. alongside when we were doing big country and to hear the rhythm section of you know mark gould uh, phil gould and mark king um together was was wonderful because mark was a drummer before you know he, he plays great drums all right so he played bass <laughs> you know obviously he was the king of slap and still is you know but he also is he's also a great bass player when he just plays with us just plays slow blues you know he can play anything yeah. Um, but yeah, his forte is that really wicked stuff that he plays, groove orientated stuff. He's a real bass player's bass player, you know. Mm. Um, so it was always an ambition of mine to work with somebody like Mark. <clears throat> but then you heard the wonderful grooves that Phil was Phil Gould was playing with Mark as, as well, which really worked well. And um, I was able to lock in instantly with Mark, you know, because he thinks like a drummer, and you know, um, especially with we're doing level forty two songs. So. Um, I found it, I found it really joyous to play. You know, Mark's a really great percussive bass player, mm. and you know the subdivisions that he plays. You know, he's playing so many notes that he's like he's like a click track whilst you're playing. So he's a very easy guy to play with in that respect. You know, because he does the outside stuff, but he still maintains yeah. that wonderful groove that you're that, that you're following. He doesn't leave that. 
he kind of embellishes around it, you know. You're right. You're bang um, on. And I love that about his playing. Yeah, he's he's got he's got such a good pocket that as a drummer, you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a good guy to play with because the pocket's there and he thinks like a drummer. So you're kind of getting a, a really um, easy connected route there, as, as well as you know, obviously when he's playing outside that stuff, it inspires you to join him. You know, so yeah, yeah. he's 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 one of those players that once he starts getting busy. You know, you can start catching those busyness with him, and vice versa. If you do stuff, he's on you straight away. So there's yeah. that. He's got that wonderful um, uh, link that you know, the instinctive things. With, he kind of knows and predicts what we're going to do as a drummer. You know, because he is a drummer as well. So he can play like that, and so you have that great communication happening with Mark that makes a really great uh, rhythm section. You know, oh, awesome. So it was a joy for me. That's great. Yeah. A great response. Now to somebody left of centre. I don't think a lot of people would recognise, and correct me if I'm wrong here again, but you work with Frida Lingstad in ABBA, not when she's I in did. ABBA, I, but after. I work. I work with Frida on a solo album. Um, Phil Collins had done an album before, and um, uh, that she was doing scheduled to do a new album, and Phil couldn't do it. And uh, Steve Liddywhite was drafted in to produce, and it was it was recommended that I do the record, which was a joy to me, A, because Phil had done the earlier album. And um, we went down um, with Steve Liddywhite with, with a great band, actually. We had Kirsten McColl on backing vocals. We had Frieda, obviously, there from ABBA. We had Ben and Bjorn play, obviously, as well, on some tracks together. So at some point, I was with ABBA minus Agnetha, you know. Um, and we had Simon Kleine on keyboards um, and Tony Levin from Peter Gable's band playing bass. Wow. Um, we yep. played, we recorded, um, it's a, an album called Shine. In fact, Stuart Adamson wrote a song called Heart of the Country that um, he, he presented to Frida because I was playing on the, the album and I managed to get a song to her. And she loved the song and said that she's going to do it. And um, we did the record, but it sounds like big country playing. I mean, there are reviews where it's, they, they're wondering, is it Stuart Adamson playing his guitar and his Evo? But it's not. Um, you know, it was... Um, I can't think of the guitarist's name off the top of my head. Uh, but it wasn't Stuart. It was the uh, session guitarist uh, that was playing. Peter Glenister, that's the guitarist. Okay. He was playing guitar. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it was a wonderful album. Um, and to get to know Frieda and, and, and have Ben and Bjorn on the same record from, with me was, was, was amazing because um, I was a big fan of ABBA anyway, you know. Uh, but it was a slight departure for her musically because um, she was experimenting with uh, new sounds and a and new style that she'd done in the previous album with, with Phil Collins. And um, we kind of continued that sound, the big drum sound on the record. And, um, you know, having Kirsty sing backing vocals as well was a joy as well with, with Kirsty Nicole. Obviously, she was married to Steve Lillywhite. So, yeah. you know, it, 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 that was a, a wonderful album to do. We did that in France. So it was very special for me um, being out the country doing something. And, and you know, it, it's a unique time for me, that record. And, um, I'm very proud to have worked with with Frida and Ben and Bjorn on that record. So, yeah, I'm I'm very blessed to be able to say I've done that. You know, <laughs> because I'm still a huge ABBA fan. I've got to write write the most amazing songs. You know, incredible songwriters and production. You know, they were like the uh, pop version of uh, Europe version of Steely Dan for me. <laughs> <laughs> Not in any musicianship in the in the songwriting structure. You know, they were incredibly well crafted songs. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So they're known as being fairly reclusive in 2018, but it probably wasn't like that back in those days. What was the social scene like around 
Frieda and the rest of the guys in ABBA? Well, obviously, um, you know, she was a big star back then, you know, as she still is, obviously, globally, but, you know, really coming out the peak of her career in the, in the early 80s. So, yeah, I think, you know, she, she's a normal person at the end of the day. You know, she's a very down-to-earth person, but um, uh, obviously she, you know, she attracted a lot of attention every time we went out, if we went to a restaurant and stuff, you know, that was sort of, you know, signing autographs and things. But, um, uh, you know, at the end of the day, she's, she's a, a lovely person, very down-to-earth, very grounded. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was yeah, interesting of that era, you know, of that time to, to see and be out with her at that time, you know. Um, but, yeah. I, I, you know, once you scratch the surface with these people, you know, at the end of the day, they're no different from us. You know, they're normal mm. people that have um, happened to deal with success, you know. Um, yeah, I, all I can say, it was a joy to work with her, and um, she was incredible to work with, you know, very very accommodating always always into hearing new ideas and um you know you allowed you to be you she wasn't you know she wasn't any diva or anything of, uh, of anything at all you know mm. yeah well, there you go joy. well mm. some somebody who has a bit of a reputation as being fairly fierce when he feels like it is pete townsend but apparently is a fabulous bloke so could, what, what's a what's a what's a funny story or a story at least that you could share about your time working with pete Oh, working with Pete again. I mean, I'm sound like I'm just saying the same soundbite, but it's true. I mean, it's a joy to work with these these legendary people. You know, I I still pinch myself and think, you know, it's it, you know, it's unbelievable. But you know, th- they become your friends over the years. I mean, I I've I auditioned for Simon Townsend um, when my, when I joined his prog, prog rock band back in the day at, at the Who Studio down in Shepparton Studios. You know, I had no idea it was Pete's brother who he was, and. Um, you know, then I met the family. I, I turned up at Simon Townsend's house and saw Keith Moon's hovercraft in the front garden. Wondered what the hell that was, you know. Uh, this green sparkled hovercraft that apparently he'd driven down the Oxford's Road and got stopped by the police. Some nonsense story. Anyway, <laughs> uh, then, then I ended up meeting Pete, obviously, through meeting Simon and his mum and dad at home and his brother Paul. There's a whole family event here, you know. I'm, I'm you know, they're great friends of mine. So... Uh, Pete's a great friend of mine, as, as well as the Townsend family. So, yeah, um, funny story with Pete. Um, well, I remember we were doing the Psychedelic Derrid- 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 album down at Ilpai Studios, and uh, Pete's very experimental on this album, which is what I love about Pete. You know, he, he lets new ideas flow. Um, he's controversial in, in sometimes in how he plays, the musical ideas. And uh, he said to me... Uh, on one of the records, he pulled up a TV monitor in front of my drum kit uh, because so the you know the studio wasn't in view. The, the, the drum room was separate from the control room. They so pulled up this TV monitor in front and um, said he was going to conduct me, um, which is wonderful because then Pete's conducting me while I'm playing. Um, but at the same time, he said to me on this particular song, Mark, "Don't stop drumming until I tell you to stop." So I said, what do you mean? He said, as simple as that, Mark, don't stop drumming until I tell you. So I said, okay, okay. So anyway, we started the track, and then um, halfway through the track, Pete kind of tiptoes into the studio, kind of making a shush sound with his finger, as if to say, keep drumming and don't let me disturb you. Uh-huh. And as we're recording, he starts taking away my drums from under my feet. He moves my cymbals away, 
Then he moves my hi-hat away, and then he moves my bass drum away, takes my stool away, and I end up kind of ending up with no drums. Uh, I end up almost standing up with nothing left in front of me, um, and then then I obviously have to stop because there's no more drums. <laughs> and, um, and that was something we experimented with in the studio, to, really to sort of to push my drumming so that I would have to forcibly move somewhere else and not rely on my entire kit to develop uh, the drum, the drum groove or whatever, you know, yeah. the drum thing. But he, he wanted to experiment with me. So that, that was a, a I'd never forget that, you know, I, I, I was, I, you know, it's such a, an unusual studio thing to do. Uh, I didn't see what was coming, but it was a great experience for me to experience that, you know, and, um, yeah, wonderful. Yeah. What the yeah. breakdown of your drum kit, the removal, with, with how it would make me, what I would search for regarding what I had left, you know. Mm. It's probably hard to play on the phone, but as, as a bass player, you'll know what I Oh, mean. I totally get what you're saying, like, yeah. Like, say, so you can't play that string. You've got to do your notes on the other string. You know, you've got to think differently, you know. Oh, God, yeah. Um, well, that was a funny story for me. I don't know if it was a funny story for somebody else. <laughs> It, well, if it's not if it's not in the public domain, what I find people like to hear, especially about someone who is uh, so revered as Pete Townsend, they like to hear unique stories of how a musician who interacted with him, a story that they can share. So in that regard, mate, no, I mean, I certainly haven't read that story, so it's going to be a bit of an exclusive. And because I host the podcast series, a lot of people in, in North America and also Europe listen. So, um, yeah, who knows, mate? You might, oh, you might get somebody asking about it uh, a bit later on. Yeah, no, interesting. You know, Pete, Pete again is very experimental. You know, he he on the, on that album on Psychedelics, you know, he had some uh, original and some re, redone backing tracks. You know, we he he wanted to hear some of the drumming in a very basic way. You know, we had a lot of that won't get fooled again sequencer um, um, parts that were playing, and he he I was inventing some new guitar lines on the top and underneath i had kind of delayed drums and things going on underneath you know he's a very innovative guy to work with. he's a very exciting guy to work with for me because you've got to you've got to expect the unexpected as well as you know uh experimental stuff aside he writes some great songs as well you know some powerful songs some of his solo album stuff i really enjoy playing on you know so he writes some amazing songs as well as he still has that creativity there his uniqueness that he always brings to the table what was the what was his not biggest hit as a solo artist, but was it Face to Face or Face to Face? Did you play on that? No, no. I I, I started off, um, I played on, on A Little Is Enough um, on um, Empty Glass album. And then I subsequently went on to do um, the rest of his albums um, um, jointly with Simon Phillips playing drums, pretty much half and half. Uh, and then um, Simon wasn't uh, available anymore uh, I think we did, um, I can't name the albums, um, All the Best Cowboys Have Chinese Eyes, uh, White City, um, uh, Empty Glass Was Said, uh, Psychedelic, Scoop, and of, of a few years back I did um, some new songs with him uh, for an album called Floss. It was, again, it's, um, uh, I think it was a, a book or a musical he was writing. Um, we did some, we did, uh, many tracks on that new record. I don't know if it ever came out or he's released some of them as little tasters. I'm not sure what's happening with that project. Um, yeah, um, so I'm not sure what your question was. Sorry, I've waffled too much. 
Oh, no, it's all right. I just was talking about the track Face to Face. I think it's called Face to Face or Face to Face. By oh, Pete. no, I didn't, yeah. I didn't play on that, but I, I played on, I played on um, you know, a host of other al- albums and, and tracks. So yeah. um, not that particular one. I think that was Simon Phillips playing drums on that one. Mm. Oh, that was just the most prominent one I that played I remembered. On, um, yeah. face da- I played on Face Dances, the track Face Dances, um, but okay. that, that may not be as known as the other one. All right. Yeah. Hey, there's. I'll ask you one more uh, question about an artist that you've worked with, and that's. I mean, God, there are so many. I've, I've still got. There's a few here. Ultravox. He did the Uvox album, 1986. You worked with Joan Armour Trading, Peter Gabriel, yeah. and Sting. But I want to find out what your work was like, or what you did with Peter Gabriel. No, that was, that was live. We played live. We played Sledgehammer live with him. Oh, um, right. We did the Albert Hall, and um, and we played live with Peter on that one. Uh, again, that was a Princess Trust-led uh, event, and um, right. you know, being his drummer on that was was amazing because uh, uh, Manu Cache played drums on that particular track, and I ended up playing it live. So hmm. that was a, Manu's. A, I, I love Manu's drumming as well. So that that was a joy to play with Peter on that. But live, that was. Were you? Were uh, you? But you know, the Ultra Box is going back to yeah. Oh, I was going to just say what was interesting for me, only because you brought it up was. With the Ultravox album, I, I had I was already working with Mitch on his solo records, along with Mark King on bass, and my brother played bass on some of those records as well. My brother okay. Steve, yeah. and um, uh, Mitch Mitch had said, um, "Look, Warren's left the band. Warren Khan left has left Ultravox. Uh, will you will you come down to um, to Germany to do the new Ultravox album uh, in Ninekirchen in Germany?" Um, with the legendary Kraftwerk producer, um, Connie Plank, you know. Mm. Um, it was an interesting session because Connie had never, ever um, recorded a drum kit, apparently. And by that time, I was using quite a large drum kit. You know, my kit was getting bigger and bigger um, as, as the endorsements were, you know, giving me more stuff. And I was trying new ideas out, like gong drums and two hi-hats and two snares. And I turned up at Connie's... Um, because Mitch loved all that stuff. He loved the fact I was being quite innovative of that time. And I turned up with my big drum kit, and Connie kind of looked at it and went, hmm, how are we going to mic this up? You know, I only have a few mics. So we, we, we mic'd it up as best we could. Um, and I remember his control room being tiny in this, you know, in extension from his house. And it was an old radio, like 1950s radio desk, um, kind of mixing desk you would use in a radio station where the faders, when you push them up, it made the music go quiet. It worked in reverse. Yeah. Apparently, that was so if you nudged the faders, it wouldn't just get loud, it would go quiet, you know. And it was like a little eight-track, you know. It was tiny. And um, and he had all these reel-to-reels and all this old-school technology in there from back in the day. You know, he was a very great producer for that electro stuff. So it was, it was an interesting album for me because he'd never recorded drums like that. And... Um, so he, he didn't really have a blueprint of how to record it. So my drum sound sounds a little bit different on that record because it was Connie's interpretation of getting getting a drum sound for me from what he perceived it as, you know. Yep. Uh, but it was a great record nonetheless, you know, um, an interesting record. Um, and I became a member of Ultravox, you know. Mitch said, no, you're in the band. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't stay in the band because I was still in, I was still in big country, you know. Um, but I was able to kind of spin the plates um, because I was working on all Midge's solo stuff, I kind of kept the plates in the air. I could do the, the recordings more so than I can do long tours, although during our downtime I did extensive touring with Midge, covering those tracks plus his solo stuff, you know. 
Mm. Um, likewise, I was in Progal Harem for 17 years during, during my tenure with Big Country, so that was another great band to play with, you know. Yeah, we did okay. three studio, two studio albums with those, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm focusing on, on, on the, other subjects. Okay. Look, I've got one more question for you, sir. I've got to ask you this one here. Mm-hmm. So, were you ever considered by Mark Knopfler to replace Terry Williams on the recording of Brothers in Arms? Because I know he brought in Omar Hakim, but you must have been very close to one of the drummers that he was thinking about replacing Terry with for the recording sessions. Uh, I, I would hope so, but I, I would never have known that, you know. Yeah. Um, I worked with Mark um, on um, uh, Joan Armand Training's album. Uh-huh. Uh he 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 ended up playing he ended up playing guitar. Uh, he was playing he was booked to play guitar with Joan. Um, um and um I think it's Pino Palladino on bass. Nice. And a long story short, he, he, when he came down to the studio, he he actually ended up kind of producing the record along with Joan because uh he had such a knowledge of studio technique and work. He ended up kind of playing guitar and producing but no we, we we got on fantastic and he really loved my drumming um I'm, again i'm very honored that he did and obviously mm. mutual respect there big time um and if he i wouldn't know if he'd considered me but um i know at that time i was um i was so busy that i was you know almost like i was on what you call like first call drummer for most things at that time you know mm. um I didn't realise at the time, only in hindsight, when you start seeing the body of work, you think, "Oh, hang on a minute." I, I just, I just said yes to everything. You know? It's massive. <laughs> when yeah. I could do it, I would do it. You have um, a regime. So uh, you know, <clears throat> I, I don't know. I don't know that to be true. If it is, uh, you know, I'd be very chuffed to think that because um, you know, I always loved his drummers. I'd met him actually. Funny enough, I, um, I did meet him um, back in the day uh, when I was. Before it went, before I was in Big Country, yep. um, we were touring with a band called On the Air, which was a, a pre, um, a pre Big Country band. Me and Tony Butler and Simon Townsend uh, were, were the three piece, and we were touring. And um, Dire Straits were on tour at the same time, and we met each other so many times in the same hotel, so we got to know them really well. <laughs> so possibly. Um, I was on his mind. <laughs> I'd like to think so, Dave. Told me that. You, must have, you must have been up there. I mean, it's uh, yeah. I mean, you probably only your head. It's very likely, mind. but yeah. I, I don't want to be. I don't want to be saying, "Oh, yes, it was." When I don't know, so mm. um, yeah. you know, it's a nice thought, and I, 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 I wouldn't see why not. But at the same time, I, I, I don't know that to be so, but um, it's likely. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Look, that's it from me. This has been a wonderful discussion. I feel like we could all talk right. for another three hours or so just about all, all the wonderful things you've done. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good at waffling. <laughs> no, it's great. It's been great. I mean, you, you literally... All right. Well, it's lovely to talk to you too. You know... I, yeah. I, can I just say one thing? I, I am sure. doing my own solo thing. Um, I mean, I was... Um, you know, I was in Thunderclap New when I was singing... I was a lead vocalist for eight years on drums right, and, and yep. putting a band together. I put that band together. Uh, but... Um, I do like singing as well, you see, and uh, I, I, I've got a prog rock band that I do uh, called ESP. We've got a brand new album coming out, um, 22 Layers of Sunlight, which also features Peter Coyle. He's singing now from the Lotus Eaters. Do you remember them from the 80s? I think so. Yeah, definitely. Rings First Picture yeah. of You. Do you remember that song? Uh, yeah, so he's. Um, yeah. we've got some shows coming up with them. It's, the, it's my prog rock thing that I'm doing. When, when Bruce is out with the skids, um, I'm out with that, and I'm also doing a project with... Um, um, Simon Hoff from Big Country uh, with his own project and his own solo, solo stuff 
And I'm also doing this project with Simon Hoff and Derek Forbes called Big Minds, which is half simple minds and half big country. So I'm keeping myself busy with that stuff at the moment. Wonderful. Wonderful, mate. All right. Well, okay. good to know. Brilliant. Yeah, it's been a fantastic discussion. Congratulations on a wonderful career. You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and that was my conversation with Mark Brzecki, the drummer in long-running UK outfit, Big Country. Thank you so much for listening.